Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, have you ever wondered how a pet psychic communicates with animals? Fear not. We are going to look for an answer to that question because joining me on the line to talk more about this is Nikki Vascones, an animal communicator and teacher. Nikki, thank you so much for taking some time today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. It's just such an interesting field. Before we get into what exactly you do, how did you get into becoming somebody who communicates with animals? It's not something that I always even knew was possible. I used to be a full-time attorney, and I learned through a local massage therapist that animal communication was possible. So I just started reading books on the matter and then doing practice sessions with friends and families' animals and getting very specific messages about the animal and their humans that I would have had no way of knowing. And that's how it all started. Do you have to have kind of a a gift or a calling for it? Like you said, you were were getting these messages. Is it something that you can learn or do you have to kind of possess that power? It's absolutely something that every single human can learn to do. I actually have an online animal communicator academy and I teach people all over the world how to do it when they've never even knew that this existed. I didn't have any experiences doing this as a child. I didn't know when grandma was sick. And it's something at 28 years old that I realized people could do and just started practicing. I understand, too, that uh, this got a lot of attention when a video featuring your session with a dog named Albie uh, went viral. What happened in that session that caught people that, that got all of the attention? It was so interesting. So I asked Albie if there was anything that he didn't like about his home or his life or something that we could change. And he said that he did not like his nickname. And I didn't know what it was. He didn't tell me. But he said it could be associated with him being overweight. Now, before everyone freaks out and thinks I'm putting human constructs of weight on animals, that's not the case. But in this specific situation, Albie didn't like his nickname. And I later found out that his nickname was Big Al, but only because he was a big breed dog. So for whatever reason, this specific dog didn't appreciate that nickname. So the humans changed his nickname and they noticed a massive difference in his personality and how happy he was just by changing the nickname. Hmm. And how do you know what the message is? How do you know what the the animals are trying to communicate to you? The messages come through in in a variety of ways. So sometimes it's a sudden thought implanted in my brain. For example, I might all of a sudden have this thought, I'm really excited to go to the mountain house this weekend. That's obvious. I don't have a mountain house. That's obviously not my thought. Or it might be an image in my mind. All of a sudden I see a picture of something that I've never seen before. I might feel an ache or a pain in my body where they have a pain or a lot of times it's just a sudden knowing. All of a sudden I just know something 
And there's no, I don't know why or how I do, I just do. So that's how the telepathic messages come through. Is it possible, though, that there would be people in this industry that, because people do pay a lot for this service, is it open to people scamming and and trying to, maybe if people don't have, aren't actually getting those messages, but trying to take advantage of people? Unfortunately, I think that is a reality in every profession. So certainly it can apply to the animal communicator world. And what I advise people is that when you're seeking out an animal communicator, if they ask you a bunch of specific questions about your animal and their life before they do the session, run away. I want to know as little as possible. All I want is their name, gender, and whether they're living or in spirit. That's it. Everything else will come through naturally. But if you're telling me all about your life and your animal's life, you can just fill in the blanks from that. So that's what you want to look out for. And do you do these sessions in person with the animals or can you do them, uh, say, on Zoom or on the phone? I actually do all of my sessions remotely because my clients are all over the world and I just do it through a picture. I can do it through Zoom. I have done it in person, but the majority of my sessions are just through a photograph. And, and are there certain animals that you get a more clearer sense of, say, dogs versus cats? Or, or, or is it any animal that somebody, if they want to, to, to learn more or they want you to communicate, to, that you can do it? It's any animal. They all connect through just the same. I've talked to, of course, the dogs, cats, horses, but also camels, pigs, donkeys, cows, turtles, a bearded dragon, They all come through just the same. It doesn't matter whether they're 10 years old, one year old. It's the same same conversation, same length. Of course, some animals are more chatty than others, just like some humans are more chatty than others. But the communications happen just the same. What kind of information are people looking for? What, What do you get asked to find out from animals the most? The three most common things people want to know is, one, If there's a health issue going on, if their animal has any insight on that, like do they know why they're throwing up or what's going on? Another common situation is a behavioral issue or separation anxiety. How can we help that? And then the third most common reason, honestly, is just how overall can I improve my pet's life? What do they need? What do they want? What don't they like? Interesting. And when you say that you get, like you said, you might get a thought of, I want to go to the mountain house or I want to do something. And it's clearly not your thought because you don't have one. Mm -hmm. Do you hear it in your voice or or do different animals come through in different voices? For me personally, all of the messages are in my voice akin to if I was reading a book silently to myself. So I don't hear accents or tones. I, of course, will get a sense of their personality, like if an animal is maybe talking really fast or they're very slow and chill, but it's all in my voice. How many of these sessions would you do? Would you do more than one a day or how busy are you? No, right now I just do one a day. In the beginning, I did two or three when my sessions weren't as long, but this is very energetically tiring. It's not something that I can do all day long. So a lot of people are thinking, you know, I'm talking to eight, nine animals a day. That's just not the case. So I, my sweet spot is one. I can do two, but I prefer just one session a day. And how long does the session last? About 90 minutes, 75 to 90 minutes. Hmm. That, I could see how that would be taxing if you're spending that time. And I would imagine in that scenario, too, you have to be really focused. Oh, definitely. You're very focused. You're sitting still. I mean, for me, I'm sitting still in a chair, not moving with my eyes shut. So just sitting 
for three hours straight, three and a half hours straight is, is a lot when you're not moving at all, which is why I tend to just gravitate towards one session a day. Right. And, and do you have a preference on what animals you like to communicate with the most? No, it's also fun. I was just in Thailand volunteering at an elephant sanctuary and I communicated with elephants for the second time, which was awesome. But I love connecting with all of the animals because they all have different and unique personalities. Are the owners generally satisfied with what you tell them? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, of course, you know, there are a handful that that aren't and then they get refunded. You know, no one's perfect, but majority of the time it's, it's very fun. They love it. It helps strengthen the already strong bond that people have with their animals. And it's just a lot of fun. I I guess so. But I would imagine it can also be pretty serious if people are are looking to find, say, a medical problem with their pet or they want to know if their pet Mm -hmm. is elderly and they want to know the best way to to kind of deal with that. Yeah. And, you know, that comes through a lot. And it's it's great because you get clarity on something that you're unsure about. I talked to a cat one time and he was very sick and no one could figure out what was going on. And right when I connected with him, my bottom right jaw started aching. And he was pointing me specifically to this one tooth. And it turns out that tooth was abscessed. And they pulled the tooth. He got some medicine. And then he was back to his normal self. So sometimes it's, it's just phenomenal what the animals can share and how much, quickly we, how much more quickly we can get to the solution sometimes. And when you say you talked to the cat, do you have conversations that go back and forth or is it one way? It's very much a two-way dialogue. So I will ask a question. They will respond. Maybe I don't understand what they're showing me, so I'll ask for clarification. But, of course, sometimes I ask a question. They don't want to answer that question. They say something else. So it very much is a dialogue, basically like you and I are communicating right now. All right. Well, what an interesting, interesting field of work. Nikki, we'll leave it there for this morning. But thanks so much for sharing this with us today. Of course. Thank you so much, Jill. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is time to check in with show contributor Scott Schantz. Good morning to you. Hi, Jill. How are you? I'm very well. And I know we're supposed to be talking about Christmas movies, and we will. Yeah. But uh, you, uh, you, I saw you chuckling a little bit uh, but with the uh, pet psychic. Uh, I Yes. I, <laughs> I was enjoying the interview with the pet psychic, and um, I express my joy through laughter sometimes <laughs> when I'm enjoying something. Were you skeptical? Um, Okay, so I would say that, first of all, if uh, visiting a pet psychic is something that brings you peace, then go ahead and do it. No no judgment. Personally, uh, I I find all of that uh, psychic uh, energy, uh, tapping into the beyond, all of that stuff I'm skeptical of, extremely skeptical of. Whether it's pets, humans, totally. what have you? All of it. Are all you, of it. Are, would you be interested in being a pet psychic for the money? I, where, where I had it in front of me, I think it's something like $550 for a 90-minute session. Yeah, and she said she did one session a day, yep. right? One or mm-hmm. two sessions a day. So I think I think that I, <laughs> if for the kind of money, I if I... 
I think I could do it. I would have a hard time doing it if I didn't actually believe in it. You know, I would right. feel like I'm compromising my morals. If I could get to a place where I legitimately believed that I was speaking with the soul of an animal who has passed on and that I could relay that information legitimately and authentically back to the owner, then sure. But I, I really don't believe that that's the thing that happens. Right. You know? you know, they don't have to have passed on. They can be living animals. Even still. <laughs> <laughs> Even still. I think let's, how about this? Why don't we try to understand? Understand what they're what they're actually like say like Doctor Doolittle what they're saying what they're before saying. we start trying to understand what they're thinking. Fair enough, fair enough. But there you go. She did warn about scammers too. That if somebody asks a lot of questions about your pet, they might not be legit. But uh, interesting. I found it. Uh, yeah, interesting. But I'm probably not going to be hiring a pet psychic to, anytime soon. Uh, to each their own. Yes. Live and let live. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on because you have some information. This is the time of year when people watch and. Rewatch Christmas films. Are you a Christmas movie person? I do watch them. Um, I used to watch the Hallmark movies, even though everyone has the exact same plot, so you get kind of sick of them. But the streaming services have upped their game. Now they always put one out, whether it's Netflix or Amazon Prime, so I tend to watch those ones. Okay, so do you rewatch any of the classics? Like which okay, so what is your favorite or what do you think is the most rewatchable? Yahoo has surveyed people about what classic Christmas movies, and by classic I mean the ones that we all know. They could be this could be like from the nineties. In 2000s. Okay. I always rewatch Elf. Okay. Elf is number five. Oh, all right. Uh, Christmas Vacation. Number six. Ooh. I generally watch, I try and watch Love Actually at the five week mark. I didn't do it this year. Love Actually is my favorite Christmas movie of all time. (laughs) Of course it is. And yeah, of course. And it actually did not make the top 10. (gasps) Really? I feel like there has been this conversation happening online over the last couple of years about Love Actually like kind of getting pseudo canceled, you mm-hmm. know, because all of the people in it are actually like really bad people, <laughs> you know, like the best friend who goes and tries to like, uh, profess his love to his best friend's wife. He does after, profess his love yeah, to his and best then, friend's and wife. He walks, <laughs> and we're all like, that's so sweet. That's a, you know, there's some, there's some great storylines in it, but I do, I love Love Actually. Uh, Die Hard was number 10. Ooh, okay. Yeah, uh, Die Hard. Miracle on 34th Street, number 9. Classic. Uh, Charlie Brown Christmas is number 3. Nice. A Christmas Story with the BB gun, you'll shoot your eye out, number 2. And number 1, most rewatchable Christmas movie movie, Jill. Not that. That's Charlie Brown. (laughs) Number one. I made my family disappear. Home Alone. Home Alone. Yes, I was, I, you know, I had jotted that one down as well. I don't rewatch it, but I'm not surprised that one's high when on I the list. When I see you playing Needle and oh, Dem, you that's what ca- <laughs> YouTube, sorry. Okay, that's my fault. <laughs> Using YouTube to play a clip on the show. Uh, yeah, I think Home Alone is a great rewatchable movie. It's from my childhood. And the, they actually said that a big reason that a lot of these movies made the list here was nostalgia. It's Christmas and we want to feel nostalgic. So whatever the Christmas movies were when you were growing up, like for me, it was Home Alone. Right. Those are the movies that make the list for us because it just brings back these feelings of memories around the holidays and all these good vibes. Indeed. I, yeah, I watched Charlie Brown. I'm glad that made the list. Did The Grinch not make the not list? Not on the list. And I will say, because I have children, The Grinch, the, the animated one with Benedict yes. Cumberbatch, The Grinch, I have watched so many times because of my seven and three-year-old daughters. All right. They well, just love it. Well, time to rewatch that as well. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. It's time to get the view from Victoria with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer. Good morning to you. And good morning, Jill. 
Let's talk a financial update and uh, interesting when it comes to housing, very different from what we've been talking about. It was a fascinating update on provincial finances yesterday with the finance minister, Katrina Conroy, and uh, we get these reports three times a year and they tell you how things are going in the economy and provincial finances, but you look over the forecasts for the year ahead and one number really jumped out and that was the number, the Ministry of Finances forecast for what is going to happen to housing starts in British Columbia next year. So. The ministry says that the province is going to build 4,500 fewer housing units, housing starts, next year than it did this year. So that's a drop approaching 10% in housing starts. And the reason that's shocking is because all year, Premier David Eby and Housing Minister Ravi Kalan have been rolling out announcement after announcement after announcement about how the government is going to build more housing and make housing more affordable and provide incentives for more housing. And here we go. The Ministry of Finance is not impressed. They're saying, nah, next year we're going to build 4,500 fewer units of housing than we did this year, in spite of all this legislation in front of the House and all these press conferences and all these news releases. I was I was quite taken aback to see the numbers, and I it struck me that um, Finance Minister Conroy had some explaining to do. And d- did we get an explanation? Because that see, it <laughs> well, seems like it is the complete opposite of what we've been hearing. Uh, yep. Yeah. So, well, uh, yeah. How do, how does the minister deal with her own ministry's forecasters? Not being impressed by the government's news releases is basically it and by the premier's speeches and rhetoric. Well, she said, well, first of all, you know, um, you have to recognize that uh, interest rates are a barrier and the cost of living is still a factor and it's expensive to build things and there's a shortage of workers. And I mean, all this reasonable stuff that we're well aware of. Uh, builders are going, oh, I don't know if we're going to build and, you know, invest in a giant uh, housing project next year. Local councils are already telling us they're not impressed. So all that is true. And then at the very end, she says, and by the way, you have to understand that the Ministry of Finance tends to be prudent about these things. Well, myself, Sim, I like the, uh, uh, myself, Jill, I like the idea that the Ministry of Finance <laughs> is prudent and doesn't just get caught up in the enthusiasms of the premier's office and the people who write government news releases. But it was still pretty sobering, I thought. You know, the finance minister is saying, well, you know, that's what our ministry says. But um, she said she's a little more optimistic than they are. The housing minister is a little more optimistic than they are. But look, uh, we'll see, of course, at the end of next year, who's right about the forecast. But I have to say... Uh, it's an election year, and that forecast matters more than it usually does, especially, Jill, given the enthusiasms in the government's news releases and speeches. Right, because wasn't it just two days ago you and I were talking about this and this magical document that exists somewhere that no one has seen, but it's going to lead to 130,000 new homes and it's going to bring down the price of housing? I mean, that was just a couple days ago. 
Yes, and that's a good example of the credibility gap here because yes, uh, finance minister, the housing minister, Callan, has put out uh, an announcement that they've brought in this big piece of legislation that's going to sweep away single-family zoning in 85 BC towns and cities. And it's going to make municipalities approve, without public hearings in some cases, multiple unit construction on single-family lots. So duplexes, triplexes, quadruplexes, uh, six units in some cases. So minister says we're going to do all that. And he made a forecast. You're right. He said 130,000 multi-unit homes over 10 years and he also forecast a drop in housing prices so one of the opposition members the green house leader adam olson very effective member got up and said minister can we see the economic forecast the modeling that shows how you reached these fantastic numbers and the housing minister absolutely refused to release that he said no no we're not we're not putting it out now um, we'll put it out next month after we've done the regulations. But of course, by then, the legislation will have passed because the government's going to use its majority and the House won't be sitting. So opposition uh, won't be able to scrutinize the forecast. So they're refusing to release the numbers and the analysis that they have in the government that says all this housing legislation is going to deliver 130,000 units. Meanwhile, the finance ministry, which does put out its reports, says, frankly, we expect 4,500 fewer housing starts next year than coming this year. So, you know, at the moment, I say take the report they actually released and don't take their word for what's in the report that they refuse to release. Well, continuing now with The View from Victoria and the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer. And Vaughn, we were talking about housing starts and a bit of a different story on that front. Uh, let's shift now, though. And the Surrey mayor, Brenda Locke, she was visiting the capital. Yeah, we lead a bit of a sheltered life over here in Victoria, <laughs> Jill. And, you know, the legislature is a bit of an unreal place. So when the word spread through the corridors yesterday morning that uh, we're going to get a celebrity visit, the mayor of Surrey, Brenda Locke, is coming to Victoria, it's kind of, what does it all mean? And I go into the chamber uh, to the seats set aside for the press gallery right above the speaker's chair at a little after hmm, 10 o'clock for question period. I'm joined by Richard Zussman and Keith Baldry of Global, and we look over, and who's there right behind us? Brenda Locke. Huh. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so, of course, as you know, and as you referred to, this week, the government has been complaining bitterly again that uh, Surrey won't even take part in the process of making a new budget for policing services in Surrey. So we wonder, is it? Then uh, Brenda Locke's been complaining that Mike Harcourt never writes and he never calls Mike Harcourt. Mike Farmworth. <laughs> he um, probably doesn't Never either. writes and never calls. Yeah, I know, brain, you know, I'm old. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so is this going to be the long-awaited summit movement? Well, alas, big disappointment. Talk to Brenda Locke. No, no. Mayor of Surrey is in the capital to talk about housing. She's meeting with the housing minister, Ravi Kalan, and raising an issue that more and more mayors are raising, which is the government has embarked on this huge power grab on zoning, but municipalities are having trouble getting the details. Locke, like Mayor of Langley, uh, others have saying, saying, 
you're gonna. It sounds like you're gonna impose one size fits all on local zoning for multiple unit housing and single family neighborhoods. And you've only given us till next June to change our zoning to match your targets. Uh, could we get some detail? And they're not getting it. So that kind of went. You know, she went and talked to Calon. I, I don't think she got very far because. As you just noted, the government is saying, no, no, you know, we're not going to talk about what's going to happen. Wait for the regulations. We haven't written them yet. We'll release them before the end of the year. And then you'll know how all this is going to work. Well, believe it when you see it, in my view. But in any event, that's what she was here for. So the Surrey policing standoff continues. We did ask Locke uh, for her perspective on it. And she gave us a bit of an answer, but this is a big week, uh, Jill, in that standoff over policing in Surrey because the provincial government has stepped in, dismissed the police board, including Locke, who's a member of the police board, uh, appointed an administrator, and the government says, Mike Farmer says, the administrator uh, is going to produce a new budget for policing services in Surrey by the deadline. And the deadline, I'm looking at my calendar here, is Thursday, November the 30th. So hmm. these two sides are far apart, but it looks like it's coming down to a provincial government imposed budget on Surrey. And meanwhile, city staff in Surrey are refusing to attend the briefings with the administrator on the budget I, the view, I would say, uh, Jill, from <laughs> Mayor Locke is, look, province has taken control of this. Fine. All right. We don't like it. You have the power to do it. So go ahead and do it. But don't ask us to play a supporting role in you imposing this budget on the people of Surrey. Well, and don't you think it also will come down to, and this is nothing against the administrator, against Mike Sear, but it doesn't matter what budget he puts forward. Do you even think they're going to look at it or before they vote it down or they're, they're not going to accept it anyway? Yeah, you know, we've actually kind of got the script on that. You're right. Uh, it looks, and Block has sort of said, just because they impose a budget on us or deliver a budget to Surrey Council, yeah, we'll look it over. Surrey Council doesn't have to vote to approve it. So then what happens? Well, Mike Farnworth has already told us, if Surrey Council turns down the budget, then it goes to the Provincial Director of Policing Services in Farnworth's ministry, and he imposes the budget. So we've, we've kind of got the script already laid out here. And in fact, at a certain level... Mayor of Surrey, Brenda Locke, has already recognized that at the end of the day, Farnworth's budget from his administrator and his director of policing services is going to be imposed on Surrey, and Surrey's going to have to eat it. Because, And you can see that because Farnworth complained this week that Surrey seems to be more interested in running an advertising campaign than they are in cooperating. That's true. Surrey is running social media ads aimed at taxpayers in Surrey saying, prepare yourselves for the NDP police tax. It's going to be imposed on you by the provincial government. You're going to have to pay the taxes but essentially, Brenda Locke saying, don't blame me, you know, I didn't do this. 
this is your provincial government doing it. And uh, this thing is going to turn into a horribly messy political argument next year, Joe, because it is uh, provincial election year. And most of the MLAs from Surrey are New Democrats. Interesting. And also, is it fair to read a little bit more into Brenda Locke actually being uh, in Victoria? I mean, she had to know that her being there was going to get a lot of attention. And wouldn't it have been strange if if she and Mike Farnworth bumped into each other in the hallway? Uh, We asked Mike Farnworth in the hallway (laughs) when the buzz spread that Brenda Locke was in town. Was he going to meet with her? And he told us his calendar was full. So, Hmm. look, uh, the New Democrats are gambling that at the end of the day, the people of Surrey will be happy that the policing standoff is over, happy that the provincially imposed Surrey policing services are going ahead and the RCMP is being phased out. And the government has put $150 million on the table to reduce the impact on Surrey ratepayers of the policing transition. So I, that's the provincial government gamble. And the mayor of Surrey's gamble is basically, I would say, fine, you've taken the power. You're going to go ahead and do it. But you're also going to wear the impact on Surrey. We're not going to let you blame us for the tax increase. Right. Which, so it'll be interesting to see if the ad campaign actually works or makes a difference or if it makes people angry. Yeah, you know, I mean, the one thing I would say in all this is the provincial government, the New Democrats, when you've got a big majority in the legislature, you get addicted to provincial power. All you have to do is snap your fingers and your MLAs fall in line and they'll pass the legislation and impose all this on Surrey. Right. But just because you have the power doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. This very aggressive approach has alienated the council in Surrey. Was there any chance of working something out? I don't think Victoria even tried very hard. As I say, the New Democrats are addicted to their legislative majority. We've got the power. We're going to do it. But I think, you know, in my experience, British Columbians would sooner some sort of conciliation, some sort of peace agreement, some sort of agreeing to work along together. And I don't think the provincial government's tried very hard to make that happen. I think they, as I said, I think they're just very arrogantly addicted to their legislative power. We're seeing that on the housing file as well, Jill. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got the power to take control of local zoning, so they're going to do it. But the consequences down the road... Is the public going to like it? I don't know about that. All right. Well, we'll see you tomorrow. Big day with that budget deadline. Vaughn, thank you so much. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye, Joe. This is Mornings with Simi. We are going to check back in with Mornings with Simi contributor Scott Chance. Good morning again to you. Hi. You are talking about mental health this morning. This is very timely. Yeah, absolutely. I am passionate about mental health, try to be as big of an advocate as I can for it. And so I always like stories like this, even though they're not... 
they're not the, the news isn't great, but at least we're talking about it. So Telus Health has released its latest mental health index. They kind of do this on a monthly basis, and uh, not hugely surprising news here. Things are kind of consistently getting worse, or at the very least, not getting better. So I talked to Paula Allen. She is the global leader and senior vice president of research and client insights for Telus Health, and I sort of asked her, like, what you know, you've been doing this research. What have you been finding about you know the mental health of of Canadians. What we found is that there was a massive decline in our collective mental health at the beginning of the pandemic disruption. So when we looked at it at April 2020, it was a significant drop from before. And we really haven't recovered since. It's gone up a little bit, down a little bit. We've had some peaks. Uh, but right now, our mental health is as compromised as it was right at the very beginning of the pandemic, particularly driven by isolation and anxiety. Wow, yeah. And it, that's that's crazy to think because I, I feel like for so many people, we've sort of moved past the pandemic in terms of um, the logistics side of things. We're back at work. We're meeting with families. All the events are back on. But in mental health, you say we are like the mental health index that TELUS has just released. We're in the same spot that we were at the very beginning of the pandemic. Absolutely. And, and for slightly different reasons. I mean, there was a fair bit of a shock and fear at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, our lives were turned upside down, changed. We had the forced isolation for good reason, but we had it. When you have a traumatic experience, even when that experience goes away, the impact does not go away unless you do the work to help make it, make it so. And one of the other points that we found is that coming out of the pandemic, people were much more sensitive to stress. So we kind of had this um, heightened vulnerability and we're moving into other change. So, you know, there was the inflation situation. We have wars. There's upheaval in terms of how work is going to be done. There's a number of things that kind of added to that vulnerability that we developed during the pandemic. So what can we do about it? Because we know that the situation is real. We all, I'm sure, know somebody who is affected by it, um, if, if not even us ourselves. What, what, can, what can we do? What should we be doing to combat this? Because no one wants it to stay this way. There are things people can do on an individual level. Like, you know, two-thirds of us have actually made our world a little bit smaller you know, we're not having the contact that we used to have. And you, you do need to have interactions in order to build trust. And trust in other people is what reduces that sense of isolation, so that, that connection. So reaching out, one of our reports indicated doing volunteer work was very helpful uh, because you had shared purpose and were interacting with others. The isolation is something that, the, the anxiety, I mean, is something that we might actually need to get some professional help for, many of us. Uh, and people think of professional health as, you know, oh my gosh, you know, why would I do that? Like, I'm not in a crisis situation. But whenever things are sort of not right, sometimes we just need one session to coach us about how we might leverage the skills that we've already developed over the past while, but we've perhaps forgotten. We're moving towards the holiday season, and I know that's a stressful time for a lot of people. Do you have any information on that? Has that contributed to our stress? You know, we talk about the weather, it's darker, it's cold, all of that. You know, has that had any effect on how we're feeling? 
Yeah, well, we've seen a dip, you know, in, in December months, uh, January, you know, throughout the, the history of the, of the mental health index. And, and again, when you think about it, we have our daily lives, we have our daily stresses, but there's a lot that's put on top of us with that, with the holidays. I mean, it's wonderful, but there's more expectation in terms of, you know, things to do so people are more tired. Um, there's expectations in terms of spending money, which is a very significant vulnerability for us right now. And some people, you know, they ha- there's an expectation that they interact with family members, and if they haven't resolved some underlying issues with those family members, that anticipation can add to it as well. So it unfortunately is a period of time where we see uh, typically a decline in mental health. How can we uh, recognize, because we all want to take some accountability for the people around us, um, when a coworker or a family member is experiencing some mental health difficulties and, you know, we can hopefully try to get in front of that or be supportive or, you know, maybe lend lend an ear. Um, What are some of the signs that somebody we know might be struggling with some mental health issues? Well, number one is trust yourself. I think human beings are a lot smarter than we give ourselves credit for. Like when you suspect something might be a little bit off, when you see uh, somebody's behavior or their manner of interaction change, typically that's an indication of something. You know, it could be mental strain. It could, you know, have pain from a physical health point of view, but it is an indication that something is not the same as it was before. A hundred percent, that is the time where you need to step in. A hundred percent, show that person that you care about them, that you've noticed something very specific that's different. And, you know, if they if they want to talk to you, that's great. If your coworkers or a manager, you know, remind them of the Employee Assistance Program, which addresses a range of issues. So mental health, financial, legal consultation, physical health issues. Uh, But the main thing is when you see something that doesn't look right, just ask and show the person that you care. That makes a big difference. That's Paula Allen. She's the global leader and senior VP of research and insights for TELUS Health. Uh, I think some important information there as we go into a very stressful time for a lot of people. Oh, so stressful. You're absolutely right. That is uh, great, great advice. Scott, thank you so much. You got it. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, RCMP in Prince George are warning about the dangers of sexual extortion. This after a 12-year-old boy in that community died by suicide. It happened in October. Investigators have since said that they believe his actions were in response to online sextortion. And that was according to an RCMP news release. At this point, police are still working to identify a suspect. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Tiana Sharifi, CEO of the Exploitation Education Institute. Tiana, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for highlighting this issue. Well, it's just such a sad and and just a tragic story out of Prince George, but it is getting, um, or at least prompting conversations about sexual exploitation and how prevalent it is. And I understand that we've actually seen this type of extortion really increase in the past few years. We absolutely have um, for two different reasons. I mean, one being that since the pandemic, uh, kids relied on technology even more to connect and to belong. Um, And and the second piece, unfortunately, is just 
these uh, criminal sex extorters who are looking for financial gain and using child vulnerability, they're understanding that there's easier opportunities to do this online and targeting, uh, you know, young children and teens. I understand as well that not only are we seeing a big increase in this type of extortion, but using things like Snapchat and other platforms, and a lot of the victims are male. Yeah, absolutely. So what's really interesting is that, you know, we don't typically think of males as being victims of any kind of sexual exploitation. However, when it comes to sextortion and the rates that we're seeing, about 91% being males, the reason that's happening is because these sex sextorters are sexually predating in order to get financial gain. And so they're looking for the type of people that are going to have their guards down, that won't believe that they can be victimized, and that will experience a lot more shame than the average person. And so this is why they're targeting males, specifically young males. And is it the thought process then that they'll get that gain? And because of like what you talked about, the the perceived kind of blame or guilt or, or if someone is fearful and, and, and doesn't come forward, they get away with it because young people aren't talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that a lot of young people are very aware of it. But I think what we're not um, doing well enough as parents and, and teachers and counselors is really letting kids know that if it happens to you, because it is common, if it happens to you that there is help, there are people that will not shame you. It's nothing that is your fault. Um, and, and really looking at giving them a proper understanding of what the consequences would be, because a lot of these kids are fearful that, well, I'm going to get in trouble or, you know, what is it going to look like if I come forward? So we definitely need to open up that conversation much more. Uh, We've heard from the RCMP and uh, some advice, uh, and like you mentioned, parents being involved, but RCMP advising that uh, you stop the communication with blackmailers, that you don't give in to those demands. But that seems a lot easier said than done. Absolutely. And uh, again, this is where that conversation piece is important. So most of the time, and again, kids need to know this, most of the time, those threats are not real threats. And so it's not just stopping the communication altogether. It's not replying and then immediately reaching out and getting police involved, getting cyber tip involved in these investigators so that they can track that person and make sure that they don't follow through on the threat. What else can can parents or guardians and even classmates and friends look out for as far as if somebody is being uh, sextorted, if they if they are being um, um, extorted online, are there signs, things to look out for? Yeah, in terms of, um, you know, when when kids or teens are experiencing sextortion, if your child all of a sudden experiences an increase in anxiety, um, if they're seeming much more quiet, more in their room and isolated, I think that's an indication that there is something greater going on with us when we go into schools and kids come forward and and disclose to us. um, A lot of these kids have been holding on to something for quite a while and so you see those symptoms start to express themselves. And then in terms of what they can look out for when it comes to um, online, it's making sure that they know what is healthy versus unhealthy online behaviors by other people that they will connect with. And is it coming from parents? Or I, I would think in a lot of cases, maybe parents have difficulty talking about this. Or are there, are there other types of support groups that kids or, or younger people are more likely to, to pay attention to or where they're going to feel more comfortable talking about this? 
Yeah, you know what? I think that we found that the kids feel more comfortable talking to whatever source is opening up the conversation with them. So parents can absolutely be a safe source. And I think that a part of this, and I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing this because I think that parents um, can pay, play a large role in eliminating this shame and fear that a child might have in coming forward. And so I think a lot of this is um, having very specific conversations with your kids around, again, the consequences, but also um, what they can look out for and additionally making them know, and this is very counterintuitive, but letting them know that if it does happen to them, they're a victim and the consequence will not be to take their technology away altogether. Mm. Yeah, that, that does. That, that seems like a really important point because I would imagine that would be a big fear. It, yeah, it absolutely would be. And that's actually, it's interesting because about, I would say, half of the kids that come forward to us, that's the reason why they haven't disclosed is this worry that, well, if I say that I've been victimized and I did something that I shouldn't have done, then the consequence is taking away my technology. And I can't, I can't have that happen because it's my sense of connection and belonging and, you know, entertainment and, and those things. And so it is counterintuitive. Um, but it's, it's letting them know your devices won't be taken away. They won't be confiscated. But what we'll have to do is have more conversations about how to use them safely and put up better boundaries when it comes to using online. Very good advice. Tiana, we'll leave it there for this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you may have heard this in the news. Last year, BC, on behalf of Canada, was able to reach a settlement. It was worth about $150 million with Purdue Pharma, and that is a pharmaceutical company owned by the Sackler family. It's become even more well-known because of a Netflix limited series. This was the largest ever settlement of a government health claim in the history of this country. And now the province has started the certification hearing for the lawsuit, where where it is going to ask the courts to for the right to pursue a single class action lawsuit. Well, what is this actually going to look like? Nikki Sharma is BC's Attorney General and joins us on the line now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So what is this actually going to look like now that, that the province has taken this step or took this step on Monday? Yeah, so the province of British Columbia has really been leading the way since 2018 in terms of holding opioid companies to account for their actions. We know it's had a devastating impact on British Columbia, the opioid crisis, and across Canada. And in 2018, we started, it led to one settlement with Purdue Pharma that you mentioned of $150 million. And BC is leading the way again. Um, we started a certification hearing on Monday, which is um, on leading the way on behalf of the, all of the governments in Canada. Um, to hold a, a series of uh, pharmaceutical companies account for the costs that really everybody in British Columbia has had to incur, whether it's healthcare costs or, and also the toll that it's had on people um, emotionally and, and devastating families across this province. So we're stepping up to hold them into account. And the the new thing about this action that um, it's designed um, to uh, include all governments in Canada, so provinces. Uh, territories and the federal government. So not only are we leading the way recovering costs for BC, but for all of Canada. So all governments have joined the fight. Um, we think it's important to recover, to make sure that companies are held accountable for wrongdoing that leads to harms for British Columbians. I certainly see that as an important role that I have as Attorney General.
I know that this lawsuit, uh, the, the number put forward was that it could be a much larger class action suit asking that dozens of pharmaceutical and pharmaceutical adjacent companies pay. Uh, do you have any idea what kind of a settlement BC and with the other provinces, what kind of settlement the provinces are looking for? Um, you know, the, it's, it's a, many actors, many dozens of companies. I don't have a direct number, but it would be much larger than what we would be seeking or we've already settled with Purdue Pharma with $150 million. You know, we're going to meet these companies either in court or at the negotiation table. So if they are like Purdue Pharma willing to step up um, to settle these, these claims outside, then if not, we will be meeting them in court. What kind of a cost is BC looking at for, to, to lead this and to do this fight? Um, well, you know, I have a team of lawyers and we have lawyers that are hired um, to, to do the work. This is part of, you know, it's much less of a cost compared to what we are asking to recover. And I think it's really important work, right? That um, what what we know is that British Columbians have, have faced a toll of the toxic drug crisis, but every British Columbian, right? Because we have a healthcare system um, that that uh, we all pay into as, as, as citizens of this province that's had, had to respond to this crisis. And we think it's right that companies that through deceptive marketing pack practices have led to, um, you know, certain aspects of addiction and parts of the crisis should be accountable for some of those costs. I think it's right that we hold companies to account. And I certainly see that, like I said, as a strong role for myself as attorney general to represent BC in court. Right. And, and I think people would agree with that. But I'm, I'm curious, though, do you have any idea what the price tag is? Because even though, it, it, like you're saying, it's less than, say, the $150 million settlement or it's less than, than what a settlement could be, that's still a potential settlement. Uh, settlement. That's not a given. Uh, well, we've had success with the $150 million settlement um, with Purdue Pharma. Um, these are costs that, you know, I don't have a specific number of how much and we'll, it'll be applications that go on for years, but these are costs that um, and we know will be much less than than what we would be recovering and worth it in terms of bringing forward, um, you know, from behalf of all British Columbians, the money that we've all spent, right, um, to, to respond to the crisis. Uh, you mentioned there's something going on for years. Do you have any idea how long this will take as far as getting this certified and how long it could potentially be in the court system? Um, well, you know, like I said, there are ways of resolving disputes outside of court. So Purdue Pharma, we reach a settlement for the 150 that I talked about. We're holding now dozens of companies to account. So um, it's hard to predict when we'll be able to reach settlement. I just know we, our team of lawyers is, um, is actually leading the charge in the country to hold um, companies to account for their actions. So I expect that we will have more news and I'm happy to come on again as, as this uh, certification hearing goes, as we start to reach the next stages and maybe discussions with some companies that are willing to come to the table. Where does the money go with, with the Purdue settlement, the $150 million, if there is a settlement or BC is awarded money from these other companies, where does that money go? Yeah, it, it's actually a really um, uh, unprecedented process that I think we should all be proud of, where, where we're working together with other governments across Canada to try to figure out how do we, uh, how do we apportion, which is mean fairly, um, fairly see where the damages go across provinces. So we'll be doing that also on this class action based on all the factors that you would think in terms of uh, increase of healthcare costs. Um, it, sets, it sets a really interesting precedent to think about how we 
how we pursue um, working across with governments to understand, um, you know, how we work together to, against these multinational companies. Um, but really, you know, the money goes to governments to invest in the resources needed, the programs and services that they need to do to respond to, you know, um, as governments to their to their citizens. Is that where the $150 million has gone? Well, right now we are um, discussing, like, with the other governments, um, the apportionment, so where how it's divided up amongst provinces. And I, I think in British Columbia, I mean, we'll, we'll have more um, to say once that, that happens. But really what, what it goes towards is government services that so British Columbia can count on, including mental health and addictions, responding to some of the, the, the issues and crises that we have to address things like the opioid epidemic. All right. Uh, Nikki Sharma, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much, though, for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Rick Mercer has a new memoir out, and it goes behind the scenes of stories from some of his weekly adventures on his TV show. This is a show that spanned 15 seasons. It has situations where his life was in danger. He jumped into a lake with a politician sans bathing suit. The stories go on and on, and Rick Mercer joins me now to talk more about them. Hey, thanks so much for being here. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you have just finished your second memoir, which is two more than a lot of people ever write. And this one is behind the scenes of the Rick Mercer Report, which I know many, many people are familiar with, huge fans of. You started by writing, asking the question, what does it mean to be Canadian? Uh, Don't want to give the answer away, but what was it like trying to find out? Well, my tongue was a little bit in my cheek when I suggested that when I started out with the Mercer Report, I wanted to answer that question. What does it mean to be a Canadian? And the reason why that question was banging around in my head for most of my life is when I was a kid, um, when I was like 16, I guess, uh, Brian Mulroney's government had a royal commission that traveled around the country asking the question, what does it mean to be a Canadian? And I can remember being a kid going, my God, what kind of weird country are we that we have to ask that question? And then, of course, it being a royal commission, they spent about 20 or $30 million and produced six phone books worth of material, never answered the question. <laughs> and I did notice over the years that if people did talk about what it mean to be, meant to be a Canadian, very quickly, Canadians will just start talking about how we're not like Americans which is a really weird way to define yourself. So I always thought, long story short, in the back of my mind, when I headed out on the road to do the Mercer Report, I was going to travel to all these places, I would somehow answer that question in a way that would finally nip it in the bud. But I don't want to give away too much. No, (laughs) no, No. we we won't do that. Uh, You mentioned traveling. 15 years you spent going to more places, I'm sure, in Canada that uh, that many, many people have visited. Uh, People familiar with the show will know that that you talk to a lot of politicians, musicians. Uh, There's a great uh, part in there about tobogganing with Getty Lee. You don't pull any punches when it comes to calling out politicians, no matter the party. Uh, were you ever surprised or were you ever worried what the what the reaction would be when you call them out? And, and really, in some cases in the book, I mean, like I said, you're not pulling any punches. Uh, you know, the show was always about celebrating. And it was all if we went to a town, we were celebrating. If we if I went and I joined an assembly line where people are sorting garbage on a recycling factory. I was there to celebrate that occupation. It was just celebrate, celebrate. That was, that was a, a cardinal rule. Uh, with the politicians, not so much. Um, 
but a number of them came on the show over the years. And this book is about behind the scenes. So I do talk about the weird encounters that I had with Prime Minister Stephen Harper when he appeared on the show and some very odd encounters with Justin Trudeau along the way. Then, of course, there's skinny dipping with Bob Ray, which happened on the show. There, but I, it's mostly, it's not like I'm not pulling any punches. It's just I'm just telling the story 10 years later about what really happened behind the scenes. And when it was happening, and you write about this, that this was not a show to have gotcha moments, and you didn't want people to think that if something happened that was like that, that it was going to go into the show, it was going to go on television. But when those moments were happening, in the back of your mind, were you thinking, one day I'm going to tell these stories? Uh, Maybe, and only in the context of uh, a politician, a prime minister or someone like that. Because that was so key (laughs) for the show, that we had such incredible access. Like, it was unbelievable. We could literally call anywhere and say we'd like to come and do a segment. And they always said yes, because I think people knew in their heart of hearts that we weren't there to embarrass them in any way. And a lot of the times, I was dealing with people who had never been on TV before, probably will never be on TV ever again. And I looked at my job as to making them look like rock stars. It's one thing to have Geddy Lee, the lead singer of Rush, on the show, and he knows his way around an interview. Of course he does. He's been doing it for, for, you know, 50 years. But but to have someone who's an oyster fisherman, then that's a different skill set. And I don't have a lot of skills, but I feel like I was good at that. (laughs) Well, and even closer to home in in B.C., you got the bee beard. And I think even for British Columbians, that wasn't something that a lot of people knew about, nor is it something that a lot of people would do, even if they were a TV host. Oh, no. There There was always an accusation because on the surface, you look at my show, it was such a great gig. I mean, a lot of people were very envious of the gig. But there were always things that people weren't envious of, like that. Like, oh, we're going to take a queen bee and we're going to slather it, tie it to your neck. <laughs> and we're going to slather your neck and face with some sort of pheromone. Pheromone, what do they call it? Whatever. It makes bees insanely horny. <laughs> then we're going to drop 10,000 bees in front of your face and they're going to attach themselves to you. Those <laughs> days, I, weren't, I wasn't going, this is the best job in the world. But overall, I was. Because you said in your introduction that I've traveled to so many places, and I really believe it's given me a perspective. And obviously, I'm a big supporter of people traveling inside of Canada. I think it would solve so many of our problems. But that said, the reality is, if you're there in Vancouver or anywhere in British Columbia, and you're going, you know, maybe we should take the kids to the Maritimes for a couple of weeks. Well, you can go to Hawaii for a month for what that costs. (laughs) And, And... Same with if you're in Toronto. I mean, my God, they almost pay you to go to Florida. Um, So traveling inside of Canada has always been difficult. Um, It's always been expensive. We're such a big country. So I realized that the fact that I went to 500 different places in 15 years was like a gift like no other. And if anyone gets a chance to go to, say, a Callowitz or Yellowknife or any of these places in the north as well, they should absolutely jump at the shot. But it's, it's tricky stuff to pull off. It is indeed. And like you said, it is uh, very expensive, uh, depending on where you're going uh, as well. Uh, You do write in the book as well, uh, your trip to Africa with Belinda Stronach. And then after that, uh, I I loved how this all came about because people will probably remember Spread the Net and that that happened because you had two minutes of air to fill. Yeah, a long story short, I went 
to Africa with Belinda. And when I said, I said, I'm not coming back. I'm not going to be one of those white guys who doesn't <laughs> shut up about Africa, okay? Like, you know, they don't need that. And but we ended up starting a charity called Spread the Net, which purchased anti-malaria bed nets. And uh, because of the experience that we had in Africa that was, you know, uh, terrifying and, and devastating, and we were both very committed to buying a lot of bed nets, and we did. But then about two years after the charity started, I had never mentioned the charity on the air because it was about children dying in Africa. We were a comedy show, for God's sake. It was like, (laughs) well, that's not going to work. And then one week, we came up short. We had about two minutes to kill. And we had done a number of contests that I always had high hopes for, but never really worked, like Canada's best toboggan hill or Canada's coolest shed. And we just... And it was my partner, Gerald, said, what about the bed nets there? You know, try to get high school students to raise money for bed nets. So we launched the, the bed net challenge, the student challenge. And we just said, whatever school raises the most money for bed nets and buys the most bed nets, we'll come and visit you. And I honestly thought, you know, maybe we'll raise three grand, maybe four grand. And it took off like crazy. 50, stu- 50 schools signed up or something. Um, and then I started getting almost hate mail from elementary school students going, why aren't we eligible? And they had learned about malaria. They knew it was a childhood disease that was a disease that was particularly uh, fatal when it came to children. And they wanted to, they started joining the contest, even though they weren't eligible. And it just took on a life of its own over the next 10 or 11 years. And millions and millions and millions of dollars were raised. And I should emphasize, I didn't raise a dime of it. It was all students across the country. Uh, they did the heavy lifting. By the end of it, we were visiting four schools a year. Um, and it was always my favorite show because I just always felt like the future, when you when you operate in the bubble that's Ottawa covering politics sometimes, it's easy to think the glass is half empty. But I just always felt so good about the future and, and young people and the country. After a week of traveling all over the country to visit schools, who would raise money for children on the other side of the planet. It was just always an incredible, feel-good, wonderful episode. Well, it is one of many, many amazing stories in this book. Rick, I could talk to you for hours, but we are out of time. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That is Rick Mercer. The book is called The Road Years, A Memoir Continued. This is Mornings with Simi. We are making sense of the markets with Lori Pinkowski, a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity. You can contact her team at 604-695-LORI or visit the website at pinkowski.ca. Lori, great to check in with you today. You as well, Jill. How are you? I'm very well. How about you? Uh, doing great. Markets are in the green this morning and looking to make November one of the strongest months in the last century. So to put that in perspective, uh, the S&P 500 is up 8%. Uh, the equal weight S&P 500, which is important, that equally weights all of the companies in the S&P 500. So it gives us more of a gauge of how the actual index is doing, not just those big, uh, uh, the magnificent seven, as they say. Um, and that is also up 8% in November. Uh, the Dow up 6.3, NASDAQ up 10%, and the TSF. TSX up five and a half percent. So the rally continues to strengthen because investors believe that interest rates have peaked and the U.S. economy will be able to avoid a recession and and pull off a a soft landing. And I think that's what's important. And, 
you know, uh, you know, I've been talking about this for weeks on CKNW, even during that correction that, you know, we didn't believe this was going to turn into something greater. And we had to wait for that Fed pause to really see a significant rally in markets. And uh, and that's what we've seen. So, again, it's it pays not to panic when you see some of those corrections, as some investors probably sold out their portfolio, moved to GICs, panicked. And now you look at these returns in November. Uh, I'm sure many of those people wish they had stayed in. Yeah, but that is good news, though, when you were talking about November being one of the strongest months. That's uh, that's great news. Did Black Friday play into that at all? Yeah, when you look at uh, consumers, consumers are also very strong. Black Friday, uh, e-commerce spending rose by 7.5% compared to last year, reaching a record $9.8 billion in online sales. Um, you know, Cyber Monday topped estimates spending $12.4 billion or up 9.6% year over year. So, you know, those who have been calling for a recession in the U.S., uh, for most of this year, and I'll even calling for one next year. I mean, it's very difficult to predict that sort of thing. But when you also see GDP in the U.S. has been revised uh, to 5.2 percent, uh, you've got consumer spending, you've got low unemployment. Like at this point in the U.S., there's no recession in sight. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important to note when looking, um, you know, as to what to invest in uh, as you go into 2024, your allocation uh, to stocks, bonds, uh, money market, GICs, that sort of thing. You want to be listening to your financial advisor at this time because this is a real change, this rally that we've seen in the last few weeks uh, in terms of what's uh, gonna, what markets are going to look like going forward into 2024. Uh, and you mentioned in the States. Uh, what about uh, in Canada, GDP? We saw the GDP on the unemployment rate uh, released. Yeah, uh, Canadian GDP will uh, come out Thursday. It's expected to r- remain flat. Um, and in terms of unemployment, it's expected to stay relatively the same at 5.8%. And that's coming out on Friday, actually. So mm-hmm. Canada's economy is is weaker than the U.S. And, I, you know, again, this affects us as Canadians. It doesn't always affect your portfolio. What is going on with this, you know, with the Fed in the U.S. and interest rates and inflation, that's more what's, you know, directing where markets are going. Uh, In terms of here in Canada, um, you know, what the Bank of Canada does in terms of when are they going to reduce rates? You know, how slow is our economy going to get? What's going to happen to our real estate market? That affects us as Canadians here. And that's, again, it's important to keep our eyes on both sides of the border uh, for various reasons. And uh, there was an update as well on the end of the Q3 earnings season. What is that looking like? Well, Q3 uh, earnings have been good. Uh, 82% of um, companies have beat expectations. Uh, We are seeing uh, Canadian banks uh, start off the week, Bank of Nova Scotia. uh, They missed earnings estimates, and they also set aside um, a large amount of money for possibly sour loans, Um, and that amount was $1.2 billion. So, you know, the question again with these Canadian banks, the rest are going to be reporting later this week, is, you know, what are they seeing that we may not be seeing, you know? And again, this all has to do with high interest rates, uh, people not being able to afford uh, those payments. And so, again, I think that's going to put a lot of pressure on the Bank of Canada to reduce rates uh, rather sooner than later. And I believe the estimates for 2024 is that they're going to uh, reduce rates by anywhere between 0.75 and 1%. And, you know, again, that's just an estimate. Who knows? It could be more than that if they see uh, kind of more volatility or more softness, I should say, in the real estate market. Interesting. And uh, I understand, too, a lot of companies are actually surpassing expectations. 
Yeah, you know, it's um, it's it's been a better earnings season than we've seen in a long time. And, you know, we've seen some strength in consumer discretionary, IT, communication services, um, you know, and then going forward, I think, you know, there's been a lot of companies, you know, not just earnings, but in terms of their stock price has been left behind because as rates went higher, a lot of these kind of areas suffered, such as utilities, um, some of the real estate investments out there, even banks were soft and and telecommunications companies. So I think that going uh, into next year that you're going to see a lot of these other areas play catch up, right? It was a lot of technology stocks that did well uh, this year. And so there's a lot of room for the markets to move higher, actually, especially in that equal weight index, which, I would, which I've been referring to. to to me is a better gauge on really what's going on up there because if you look at the S&P 500 when you think of Amazon and Alphabet and um, Apple and Tesla and Nvidia and and so on there's a you know seven companies that make up a really large percentage of the S&P 500 um, you know so it's not the best gauge but now that the equal weight is moving higher that means there's breadth is improving that means more companies are participating with this rally and that's the first time we've seen that in a year and a half and that's why this change is so important and let's talk a little bit about bad bond funds what are these? Yeah, you know, I want to bring this to the attention of our listeners because I, you know, we've had people come in, they call from the radio, they bring in their portfolio, we take a look at it, we do an analysis. And a lot of people had moved to bonds, um, you know, given that 2022 was a bad year in the stock market, albeit it wasn't a great year for the bond market either. Um, as interest rates move up, the price of bonds move down. However, <clears throat> there's, you know, bond funds out there that are just no good over many, many years. And there's bond managers who are active who have done a great job at maneuvering, um, you know, where interest rates are going and they're making changes to the portfolios. And we were shocked to see how bad some of those bank bond funds were actually. And so whether we looked at one bank or another bank, you know, this is like somebody walking to their local bank branch and saying, I'm conservative investor. I need uh, to be, uh, invested, um, you know, well, and then that representative kind of puts them in some of these bank bond funds. And when we looked over a long period of time, <clears throat> over a 10 year period, uh, sometimes the annualized returns were like one or 2% annualized. Hmm. Um, you know, even for a bond fund, that's no good. And, you know, you want to make sure that there's no conflict of interest. Are you just being offered what the bank is selling you? Or are they offering you the best sort of investments that they can? And so when we look at <clears throat> some of the bond managers that we use, they've averaged like 7% annually over 10 years. So, you know, what is the difference? Well, some of those bank bond funds, to me, are more of a set it and forget it type strategy. They're just putting, uh, investing in some of the bonds that they have even on their books, possibly. Um, you know, and what you want to have is uh, a bond manager moving and changing and because nothing is static in the stock market or the bond market and changes have to be made, Joe. All right. And we have only got about 30 seconds, but what's a, an example then of a good bond fund? Yeah, again, one that is more active, that's taking advantage of, you know, for an example, a situation like COVID, people were selling bonds. The bond managers that are good and active were actually buying bonds during that time. They're making changes. The returns uh, are reflecting that. So if you take a look at your bond fund and ask for a five or 10 year history and you're seeing one or two percent annualized return, I'll tell you right now, there's better bond funds to be had. So so again, bond, the bond market probably will do well uh, going forward as rates move lower. You just want to make sure you're in the right bond uh, bond funds if you're going 
have an allocation to them. All right. That is good advice. Lori, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Great talking to you, Jill. You too. That is Lori Pinkowski, a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity. You can call Lori and her team today at 604-695-LORI. With any questions you have about investing or retirement, you can also visit their website at pinkowski.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. 